Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. In this week's episode of Holistic Health Chats, I'm being interviewed by the incredible Steph Lowe, or as you may know her on Instagram, The Natural Nutritionist. Steph is an incredible leading Australian nutritionist, and it was an absolute honor to be interviewed by her for this episode. We discuss the issues surrounding the PCOS diagnostic criteria, different misconceptions of PCOS, and also various remission strategies. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind you that at the end of February, I'm going to be reopening the doors to my signature program, the Hormone Repair Protocol, where I will be teaching you exactly what you need to know to unpack your hormonal imbalances, and I'll give you the guidance and the strategy that you need to heal your hormones so that you can live pain and symptom free. In the show notes, you'll find a link to join the wait list. As numbers are capped for this program, I really like to ensure that I can still ensure your journey with me is completely personalized. So if you are thinking that you might like to be involved in the next round, please make sure you jump on the wait list so that you are first to know. This episode wraps up the sort of theme we've been doing around PCOS in the last month or so. So if you do have any questions at all, feel free to come and find me on Instagram and send me a DM. I would love to hear from you. Hi, Selene, and welcome to the show. Hi, Steph. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So I'd love to start with a little bit of information about you and your background, certainly what's led you to what you do today as a way to allow our listeners to yeah learn more about you, but also so we can yeah then segue into our main topic today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my sort of health journey, I suppose, um, would have started, I mean, it starts when I'm born really, but mm. um, when I was young, I um, did have a really sort of wholesome upbringing with food. My mum is French, so food was really central to our life and culture and everything like that. And um, she set me up with really good, I think, real food foundations. Like she used to make all of her bread from scratch. If we were having milk, she used to go and get it from the dairy, unpasteurized and unhomogenized and all of that. She had a garden and um, quality was like really, really important for me growing up. Um, I think that just also comes with the French culture as well. But um, yeah, when I was young, my dad passed away and off the back of that, she became... um, yeah, very, very interested in how food affects our health and sort of what we can be doing from a preventative perspective to optimize our health, really. So I was very lucky in that sense. But like many of us, when we get to our teenage years, we um, often go off track. You know, I had a part-time job and I started earning my own money and that kind of thing and um, spending more time with friends and outside the home. So I would say that's where things sort of started to um 
go a little bit left with my health. I got lots of tonsillitis. Um, around that same time, I also went on the oral contraceptive, which I know is very similar to um, a lot of people of um, my generation. I think I was sort of would have been the odd one out at school if you weren't on um, birth control at that time. So it was very, very common. Um, and yeah, lots of things happened sort of that 16 to 18 timeframe, but um, my health really took a decline. Um, and about 18 or 19, I did go off um, birth control and I actually didn't have a period for two years um, after that. And it, so it was around, I just kept waiting. Like I was overseas at the time and I honestly just thought, you know, just give it some time. It will come back. It'll come back. And then I got home from um, being abroad and moved to Sydney. And I was in more of a routine, so I thought finally, like, I've got to actually deal with this. I don't think this is normal. And um, I went to a um, women's health doctor, so I specifically looked up a women's health doctor in my local area in Bondi, and I went to see her, um, and she wasn't, she didn't seem overly concerned, but she said, look, we'll run some tests, um, and we'll also send you for an internal ultrasound to see if we can see anything. So I thought, great, like, we're getting to the bottom of it. Um, and then I got my test back, and she tested, i can't really remember exactly what, but it would have been all my female hormones um, and a couple of nutrients and things like that. And she said, everything looks fine. Yeah, looks great. Um, your ultrasound results were normal. And the best thing for you to do at this point in time is just go back on the oral contraceptive pill and then just, um, yeah, sort of deal with it when when you want to have kids. <laughs> mm. And very familiar story. <laughs> yes, very, very familiar. And thankfully, I just remember getting handed the script and walking out of there and I obviously didn't feel the script but just thinking like how can that possibly be the answer like how I just honestly am so baffled by this and um, I ended up meeting a naturopath through my work at the time and we started chatting and sort of told her what was going on she said bring your results and come and see me and so I took my results to her and she basically was so baffled that I'd been told my results were fine mm -hmm. because as you can imagine, not having a menstrual cycle at all, there was basically little to no activity with most of my hormones. It was sort of, um, yeah, very, very baseline activity there. Um, and she changed lots of things with me. So she, she looked at um, my diet. I was vegetarian at the time uh, and I did have quite a few deficiencies. So we corrected those. She also did um, include herbs and acupuncture and things like that. So she really did take that 360 view um, of my health. And then I did get my period back six months mm -hmm. later and have had it ever since. And that was sort of my, I suppose, catalyst event for changing and, and deciding to um, go and study nutrition. And I did that at Griffith University for four years. And then I did mentoring with you mm -hmm. after that, which was an amazing experience and definitely gave me um the confidence, I suppose, um, and a lot of the additional skills that we don't learn at university because um, our degrees are a good starting point, but I'd say those first one to two years where you're learning all of biochemistry and science is the most useful part of them. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, then since since doing that, I've also done um, some mentoring with Rachel Arthur and, yeah, now I run my clinic day-to-day. Yeah, it's amazing to follow your journey, but I, I love when we look back in time and, and I guess identify that light bulb moment. For everyone, it's different, obviously, and it doesn't always lead to a career decision, but it is often this huge turning point when we realise that perhaps 
um, like a Western medical approach is not going to help or is only mm. sort of a small part of the, the picture. So it's good that you obviously um, met that naturopath and now obviously with all your training and combining that with your experience, um, you're doing some incredible work in you know lots of areas of, of health and nutrition, but I see you doing a lot more in that hormonal space, which is so important because it's a conversation that one, we don't really have and, and two, is not really supported by traditional approaches like going to see a doctor who unfortunately isn't trained in food and herbs and, and other holistic modalities. And we are seeing these prescriptions still being given to this day, which you and I know is a band-aid approach and has lots of long-term um, complications and you know, issues associated with that. So there is another way, which is very good to be reminded of. Yes, definitely there is. And I, you know, I think you've spoken about this quite a bit on the show recently, but um, I think it's exciting that for our for us, we'll be able to actually pass that information on to our children. Whereas I think about my mum, who was quite, uh, I guess, holistic and, um, you know, for lack of a better description, alternative in her mm. views, but she didn't have that information to talk to me as a teenager about why birth control might not be the best option and what my other alternative options might have been. Um, she wasn't uh, armed with that information because she didn't get that information. Um, mm. So it I mean, I'm 38. I can barely remember life before the internet. I mean, I've got this <laughs> image of like the dial-up computer in the lounge room at home where everyone had to, you know, get off the TV and the this and the that to to dial it up slowly. I'm showing my age here, but you know, then there's the generation above which the internet's only relatively new and. Gosh, they didn't have that information. Mm -hmm. They weren't able to doctor Google things, although that's not always a good thing. But obviously it's the access to information that we now have and that greater understanding as a mother of two girls. Like, gosh, I just feel so um, passionate about that, that like you said, the, the next generation is going to have so much more information. And ideally um, they will never have to course correct going on the pill and the problems mm -hmm. that that does create and then, you know, what happens when we're told to just, figure it out when you're ready to conceive, which I was told um, I'd lost my period for different reasons, like my weight loss experience, but I was still told I'll deal with it later, which is obviously what a lot of women are going through at now and then going down sort of an IVF route, which they may never have had to have needed to do. Yeah, definitely. I often wonder that sometimes you have those clients that are at the IVF point um, and you sort of look through the their health history and the case history. And when you start asking questions, you often wonder, like, did it have to get here? Mm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But that's an industry in itself, right? Yeah, so I know. there's some question marks <laughs> there as well, perhaps a topic for another time. Um, yeah, so today's specific topic around polycystic ovarian syndrome, obviously it is something that we've explored a little bit on the show with Ellie and myself, but it's something I know you're really passionate about. And I wanted to get some um, context from you. Um, perhaps we can start with just a little bit of a definition, but then I want to see what you're, um, you know, what you're, I want to hear about rather, what you're seeing in clinic as these sort of common presentations and perhaps even misconceptions. Yeah, absolutely. So the sort of 
uh, proper definition, I suppose, of um, PCOS is that it's this combination of genetic and environmental factors. Um, and it is a hormonal condition in which you're producing too many androgens. So um, this would be testosterone, um, DHEAS or androstyrone. Um, and that results in that collection of symptoms, which uh, is often the hair growth. So that can be around the chin, around the chest, um, face and belly. Um, and then acne as well would be very common as well. And that can be either on the face, the chest or the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the irregular cycles are that really characteristic um, symptom. And when we say irregular, it's sort of really you're looking for more than five days of variation um, because one or two days here and there of difference is not really um, all, all that irregular. Just to um, clarify that, you mean in the cycle length. So, for yes. example, one day it might be a 20-day cycle and then it could be a 30-day cycle and there's a lot of variation month to month. Absolutely, mm. absolutely, yeah. And sometimes it's huge variation, like a woman might not have her period for 50 or 60 days mm. and then she might get it 20 days apart the next time around. So, um, yeah, it's often really quite um big variations in cycle length. Um, There are different types of PCOS. So the most common one and definitely the one I obviously see most of in clinic because it is the most common is insulin resistant PCOS. So it's around about 80% of cases um, is caused by insulin resistance. Um, And then your other less common types would be post pill. So if if you've gone off um, birth control in the last six months or so and you are experiencing that collection of symptoms, um, it could just be that temporary surge in androgens as a result of going off um, the oral contraceptive. And then less commonly, we look at adrenal PCOS and inflammatory PCOS. Um, Inflammatory is also, you know, obviously a very, very big banner umbrella terms that can mean lots of different things. It could be underlying um, gut dysbiosis, um, that lots of sort of different factors, I suppose, come into that. And I think you can also say that perhaps insulin resistance and inflammatory would also cross over because yeah. insulin resistance is, of course, that metabolic inflammation as well. So we would see often that um, high CRP and high C-reactive protein um, as well as a result of, of that insulin resistance. It's good to describe those, right, because immediately you can see what the root cause mm. is and that is obviously then where you're going to direct treatment. Before we go any further, though, I just wanted to hear about um, the criteria because, you know, when we talk about an, an absent period as one of the criteria, what I see happening at least, I'd love to hear your personal experience, is that a female doesn't have a period and she's kind of just handed that diagnosis. Mm. And I think, you know, that's often a real problem because it could be hypothalamic amenorrhea, it could be something very different and, you know, I, I don't think we've got it quite right in our diagnosis to you and what we're sort of relying on in terms of the criteria for a correct diagnosis. Could you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So the criteria most commonly used is called the Rotterdam criteria. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it has three components to it. So number one, which we've talked about being those high androgens. Um, so that's high testosterone, DHEA and androstyone. And then the um, second one being irregular periods or anovulatory cycles, uh, which would mean that there's some cycles um, or perhaps all in which you're not ovulating. Um, and then number three being those polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. And I think this is probably also a really big problem in that mm. um, criteria. So in order to meet that diagnosis, you need to meet two out of three um, of those. So um, as you've talked about, like some of the, the issues with that, I suppose, is there are lots of different reasons that you could have irregular um, periods or no period at all. And certainly if you are heading towards um, uh, hypothalamic amenorrhea, those early stages before you even completely lose your period, you probably will start initially just having reg irregular periods um, and probably longer cycles. And then eventually it will go away. It's unlikely that it would sort of go from being very regular and on point and then one day vanishing. Mm. Um, and often with HA as well, which is hypothalamic amenorrhea, we will also see some of those symptoms of androgen excess. Um, it might be that increased facial hair that can also happen happen um, with HA. So I think that can be really problematic um, because often that criteria is just really used at face value. So say someone may come in to um, see their GP and um, they happen to meet that criteria. And then the next step generally is to be prescribed metformin. <laughs> um, and that's it's what fun. I see a lot of. It's kind of just like, um, great, you meet the criteria. The next step is metformin and really little to no other investigation as to is it actually PCOS? And great, if it is, can we actually test your insulin and sort of go, like take that a step further? Um, not that metformin is necessarily even the right um, next step for insulin resistance, but I think, yeah, there's just a lot of holes in that diagnostic criteria. This is the problem and I'm not blaming doctors. I'm actually blaming the system because mm. they um, are bound to offer the first line of treatment, right? So if you go in with high cholesterol, you're offered statins. If you go in with high blood pressure, you're often obviously offered blood pressure, lowering medication. If you go in with what they think is PCOS, you're offered metformin. And then we see the problem is because most people don't know what you and I know. They're not trained. So they just say, mm. okay, they accept that sort of um, treatment and there's no identification of root cause and there's no long-term solution it's a band-aid approach and that's the, the problem with the system there's not enough doctors that are um i guess additionally trained unfortunately but again another topic for another time i just think we need to spread this knowledge so women could potentially have that conversation if it's going to be common but like you when you were offered the ocp script the pill script you can just I don't know, smile and nod and leave the room and, yeah. and, and find another way, right? <laughs> yeah, It can be yeah. as sort of as straightforward as that if you don't feel like you want to engage in, in dialogue, but you can at least know that metformin isn't necessarily the solution at all. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, just, you know, I guess to reiterate that everything is connected and I think I'll give an example. Just recently I had this client in clinic who um, she's about 30 now and was diagnosed with PCOS around 22, 23, um, and very clearly insulin resistant, was handed mm -hmm. metformin. Obviously, that hasn't fixed the root cause. And so now seven to eight years on, she's also got 
other um, health conditions as a result of that not being addressed. So she now also has um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, Mm. um, which is that fat accumulation around the liver. Um, She also has endometrial hyperplasia, which is that thickening of the endometrial lining and was then prescribed um, a marina, which is now causing, um, you know, a lot of mental health challenges Mm. for her, a lot of mood changes and was told um, when she's gone to then talk to her doctor and say, look, this marina is really not working for me. I'd like to have it removed. Um, She's been told, no, you need to keep it in um, and and, uh, wait until you want to have kids. Just take it out when you want to have kids. Was she having heavy periods? Well, this is the thing. She um, was having very, very irregular periods. And so I am, the marina has been prescribed because it's progestin and that's helping to thin the endometrial lining. She obviously wasn't ovulating, so she wasn't producing her own progesterone and that was then creating this thickening of the um, endometrial lining and then you throw on the top of that that she's obviously got all of these issues with insulin as well, um, which her insulin was very high despite being on metformin. It's about 24 at the moment. Oh, my goodness. um, And so we're looking for a three or a four or a five or something, right, just for context. Yeah. And so I think, um, yeah, it just goes to show that when you're not addressing that root cause it, it's just going to continue to proliferate if that issue's remaining there. May I ask what her body composition is like or has been doing over the yeah. last sort of eight or nine years? Yeah, mm. as you would mm. expect from someone with an insulin of 24 and sort of um, that non-alcoholic fatty liver picture as well, um, definitely overweight. Um, but, yeah, it's just it was really. And is it excellent. increasing as well, like even though she- Sorry. Um, no, actually, she has been improving recently because she's started actually, you know, looking into alternative, um, well, not, I shouldn't say alternative. It's kind of just she's looking into real food options <laughs> outside of metformin. Correct. You know, yeah. like changing the diet to lower the insulin, you know, that yeah. one. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I'm glad she's found you. That's for sure. Yes. Mm. Um, is there anything you wanted to add about the diagnosis, um, especially the ultrasound? Yes. Yeah. So I think um, this is, I think, where another sort of point of contention or confusion comes in with the name. So uh, it's obviously called um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, but the cysts themselves arguably don't really have anything to do with the diagnosis. Um, really, anyone can have what looks like cysts on their um, ovaries, which would show up on an ultrasound. And these are really immature follicles. So when when your body is trying to ovulate or leading up to ovulate, there would be um, multiple follicles on that ovary. And then one will become um, what's called the dominant follicle, which will obviously go on then to ovulate. So depending when that ultrasound is done, really anyone can... um, any female can really appear as though they have um, these polycystic um, ovaries. Obviously, cysts are something different. Um, they are very real, um, but what we're talking about here is is different to that. And it's very confusing. Um, but basically, I think the name it needs a rebrand. Really, mm. it needs what a rename. What do you think is a good name? Well, I think if you were to separate it, like uh, I think insulin resistant, it could be called like metabolic hormonal syndrome or something like that because it really is that metabolic dysfunction that's causing these hormonal changes I think that would be perhaps more correct um and yeah yeah, I don't know inflammatory and adrenal it's makes it a bit trickier there yeah but I guess the, the main point is that we need to get rid of the 
PCEO. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a different kind of syndrome altogether. I'm going to give that some more thought. It's not something I've actually brainstormed, but obviously agree with you that there's real issues with the general description and, of course, the, the criteria. That's, that needs a, a mm. complete overhaul. Definitely, definitely. Mm. So obviously let's talk more about the insulin resistance type because it is by far the most common. Um, so let's just start with some basics, like what are the obvious causes of high insulin? And that would obviously then lead us to what you would then um, suggest someone does basically straight away. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So typically when I have someone come to me um, and they have been diagnosed with PCOS and may or may not be taking um, metformin mm-hmm. already, um, my first place is to make sure their insulin has actually been tested so we know how high it is because often, and this is one of those other issues, is that it hasn't even been tested and mm. they've been perhaps prescribed metformin, which um, I think is a real issue. So we look at sort of measuring how high that is to determine, uh, I guess, the extent of Mm -hmm. what's going on in that person's um, metabolic health. And we might look at a few other markers as well, of course, um, to sort of ascertain where they're at with that. Um, And typically... Just just to jump in, is that a fasting blood test that you're recommending? Yes, fasting Mm -hmm. insulin. Um, And we're, of course, looking for between three and five Mm. um, for that to be optimal. And then I might, I would also include sort of um, high-sensitive C-reactive protein. I would also include their cholesterol and lipid panel. And uh, I would often include HbA1c Mm -hmm. and a few of those other key nutrients. But what I see with HbA1c often is that that's um, second to change. Mm. So it often I'll see someone whose HbA1c looks quite good, um, but then their insulin is high. So- Which is a good point because, as you would also know, insulin is rarely tested. Even if we yeah. put it on the letter that we politely write to the doctor, they might do fasting blood glucose, kind of irrelevant, especially if the dietary changes have already been made. They may do HbA1c, but they really want to do insulin. And so then we don't, we still don't get the information that we need to identify the root cause. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I always, even if someone's HbA1c looks good, in my mind, um, I think, you know, I will say to them, look, we haven't really completely ruled it out at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is how much it will cost out of pocket if you want to yeah. go and um, opt for that yourself. Obviously, you can also go and speak to another GP if, if you'd like to um, try and still get it done through Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's step one is just really understanding what we're actually working with. Mm. And then typically you can and tell um, where that's coming from, which is usually often um, eating excess of carbohydrates of what your individual metabolism can tolerate. Of course, everyone's going to be a little bit different depending on um, body type, how much muscle mass you have on board, what kind of exercise that you're doing. Um, and then also just that, you know, bio-individuality piece, we are all quite different in what we can um, tolerate, but typically it's in excess of carbohydrates. And I think the very common picture that you would see is not necessarily, it can be someone that is eating quite unhealthy, but it can also be someone that would describe their diet as 
quite healthy Mm. and they might be having, you know, um, cereal or sort of toast and um, avo or something like that for breakfast. And then for lunch, it might be like a sandwich and then some kind of snack bar or something in the afternoon and a piece of fruit. And then for dinner, it might be, um, you know, like bolognese or something with um, like curry or something with rice. Yeah. And I've had these conversations before. I don't eat junk. I eat really well. And like, whilst you're not saying that they aren't, it's obviously still a lot more of a Western food pyramid, which is, is again, part of the problem because we've all been led to believe that this is the answer to health and now we see the problems that it's causing 10 or 20 or 30 years later. Yeah, so it can can definitely be, you know, someone who is eating more of an unhealthy diet, but it can Mm. also be someone who technically, if you were to pull up those food guidelines, would actually be following, um, you know, those conventional food guidelines that we have in place. They wouldn't really be supposedly, you know, putting a foot wrong, um, but it's still too much carbohydrate relative to what their metabolism can tolerate. So I sort of tend to use what they're currently eating and then also how, where their metabolism is actually at to determine um, how much we might change the amount of carbohydrates that we're eating. But it doesn't have to be huge changes. Like, I mean, you know, if, if we go back to that sort of uh, dietary uh day that I gave the example of um, for breakfast, if they were having bread or something for breakfast, you could just be having an omelet with um, avocado, something with proteins and fats and some veggies for lunch, instead of having a sandwich, change that into leftovers or, um, you know, a big sort of salad bowl with lots of protein and um, lots of avocado and olive oil and things like that. Anything that's really going to balance that blood sugar is where we're going. And I think, you know, people are often surprised at how quickly their insulin can actually change. Mm. Oh, it's a matter of weeks, which mm. keeps keeps coming back to this whole pandemic situation and (laughs) the link to poor metabolic health and what we could have done differently if the right information was being delivered. Mm. Anyhow, cool. So obviously there's a huge dietary role, which is great, very foundational, one of those classic sort of simple but not always easy scenarios because people find the concept of omelettes to be a little bit foreign in our Western culture Mm. where we have largely relied on toast and cereal. Um, but you know, it's obviously a relatively straightforward change when someone like your female client sees that, you know, the biggest driver of her high insulin is her diet. It obviously needs to be some, some basic changes there immediately. Definitely. And I think the thing is most of the time, no one's actually ever explained that to them before. No, And so it is really, really motivating, particularly when you have those clients that might have preconception or fertility goals in the next couple of years. I think there's that extra layer of um, motivation, obviously, for them. Um, But yeah, I just think there's just little to no explanation of all the connections made there for them um, as to how they can fix this. And I think the other thing I suppose with PCOS is that it is really, I think, looked at as this condition that you have for the rest of your life. Mm. Like once you've got it, you've got it, and there's kind of nothing you can do about it. Um, and because as we've talked about in that um, description of it, there is that genetic element. And so I think there's also a susceptibility sometimes to saying, well, it's genetic. So, you know, there's that's it. That's It's all said and done. Um, and whilst technically 
PCOS is not air quotes reversible. Obviously, something like insulin resistance, if it's driving it, is reversible, right? So you can be then in a position where you no longer express those symptoms anymore. Insulin is the key environmental factor. So if you then go back into eating those same foods that caused you to express those PCOS symptoms, then yes, you are going to probably end up expressing PCOS and having that condition again. But I would argue that, you know, whilst it's not technically reversible, you can actually be symptom-free. Put it into remission is the way I think about it. And it's exactly the same with type 2 diabetes, which obviously there is a lot of a crossover there. Like one of the biggest tragedies that I see of the last probably 50 years is that there are that many, probably millions of type 2 diabetics who were never told that it was... Mm -hmm able to be put into remission with dietary changes like that is just the biggest tragedy we obviously are doing it now slowly but i see a lot of similarities with pcos like the the women that are walking around carrying this heavy diagnosis for sometimes more than a decade being told they might have issues conceiving and the whole sort of mental and emotional picture that creates as they start to move into family planning like that's a heavy sort of label to carry. And I think what we're missing in the medical community is empowering our clients Mm -hmm. with the knowledge that the condition is reversible. Hashimoto's is another example that comes to mind that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Mm -hmm. If the client, if the patient, the person, the female, the individual doesn't know that it's reversible, it can be a really heavy burden to feel like you've got this Mm -hmm. medical condition and that you, in some cases, um, are told that you need to be medicated for life when that's that couldn't be further from the truth in the large majority of cases. So we need to be empowering these individuals with the knowledge that, you know, it is environmental largely. Genet- genetics load the gun, but that's not a life sentence mm. if you control the environment. Like this is huge for lots of examples as well as PCOS. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's in health in general, I think there's a lot of disempowering information and messages out mm. there. Um, and I've gotten out of them now, but, um, (laughs) a while ago, I sort of joined a couple of those online groups and things on Facebook, just to see like what the dialogue was in PCOS groups and things like that. Mm. And it's, you know, it's really sad actually, because there's a lot of disempowering, um, sort of information being spread in there. And I think the other thing actually, which we haven't touched on, which I see, a lot of is also just kind of looking to supplements to fix it Mm -hmm, as well. mm -hmm. Um, So a really common supplement um, for the insulin-resistant PCOS would be inositol. And I think that can often be looked to as just a natural replacement for metformin, which it isn't. Diet's really the most effective tool that we have to fix that underlying cause. Yeah, I think supplements in general can become almost a bit as like as guilty as the pharma intervention. Mm. Like we're in this sort of pill for an ill society, but that just becomes a powder for an ill, like a, a natural version of that. And we're not willing to do the work, like to commit to making the dietary changes, even if they're going to be a little bit challenging initially to change those decades of habits or food preferences. But yeah, I mean, to know that you'll be able to put it into remission to like literally not have any of those symptoms and to get your period back online and so on and so forth is clearly the focus. So what would you do with someone 
like would you use supplements at all or do you find yeah, that yeah I definitely still do mm. I think um I always will generally still do a full range of different nutrients for mm. all of my clients like I'll do you know vitamin D zinc iron um I always still like to do iodine which is not commonly included um B12 all those sorts of things and so what I'll often look at is sort do of Do you mean testing sorry? Yeah in testing I'll yeah. I'll look at mm. all of those nutrients and then I'll kind I will still use supplements but I try and always keep supplements you know minimal so that you don't ha- end up having people on 10 8 or 10 different things sometimes that might be necessary but um often we can keep it much more minimal than that and so I would prefer to look at what things that person might be really deficient in um and how we can use um, dietary intervention and also um, supplements to correct some of those deficiencies um, first. I would still consider using inositol, but it of course just depends on um, how many things that person might need. And, and perhaps Priority. I would also look for sort of um, if we could maybe find like a magnesium or something with inositol in it so we can kind of um, include the two. Yeah. And it actually, it's got me thinking about I believe it's Rachel Arthur that talks about our industry, how, you know, we can see low zinc and prescribe zinc. We can see low B12 and prescribe B12 and uh, low iron and da, 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 And it just kind of becomes mm. this ginormous prescription. And you and I probably see the people, they come in with their supplement bag or it, virtually they're rummaging around this supplement graveyard of multiple things. They've one, being given ages ago, two, don't really understand what they're taking it for and, and duration and things like that. And three, no one's looked at the big picture, like is it a gut health issue from an absorption yes. point of view or is it a, a lifestyle decision like veganism or something? Like, gosh, it, 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 we could go on and on, but we don't want to fall into the trap of, of just taking one supplement yeah. on top of another on top of another, when especially when the root cause hasn't been identified. Yeah, yeah. And I often talk to my clients about, because you often do see that where someone will come to see you and they're taking multiple different things and they're not really sure why or how And there's long B6 in taking. everything, there's yes. zinc in everything, no one's done the math, it's a complete mess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and so I, I talk to my clients about, like we give our supplements KPIs. So mm. that's just the way I've, I suppose, been able to put it into an, an analogy for them to really understand, like, this is why you're taking this. This mm-hmm. is how long you're going to take it mm-hmm. for. And this is how we're going to measure if it's being successful or not. And at mm-hmm. this point in time, we're going to reevaluate it and determine whether you should continue taking that or whether um, that's something that you only need to take for a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then we can manage it more long-term with diet. Um, so I think that is really important because too often, and I know, you know, sometimes it, if you've had a conversation with a practitioner two years ago, of course, you're probably not really going to remember why no, they've said to take not. something. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's something I do really try and talk to people about because it's so common to have someone come and see you taking um, seven or eight different things and they don't really know why. Or yeah. I know, and it's happened to me a number of times in the last year where I've done a review and literally taking out the majority, mm. like because the blood, the blood, you know, we've redone bloods or we've looked at the crossover, like I mentioned, with common nutrients that are doubled up across different mm. magnesium powders or whatever it might be. Um, and like the sense of relief that the client has, <laughs> they're not having to like <laughs> rattle every day and commit to this pretty um, intensive sort of morning, sometimes midday and evening schedule like I get a lot of um sort of 
I don't know, reward out of being able to help someone do that and understand what they're taking. And I would say probably one of the biggest clinical changes I've made in recent years is explaining that to clients in more detail, giving them timelines, helping them Mm. to understand what we're going to retest when and, and, you know, just that extra clarity. It it definitely feeds compliance as well. Mm. They know, okay, right, okay, maybe I need to take magnesium long-term. That's cool. I can develop that routine to have that every night or what have you, but I'm only taking this um, zinc for three months or six months or something like that. And I think um, we need to spend more time educating our clients on that piece so we don't become as guilty as the pharmaceutical prescriptions which are given out with with sort of, you know, no plan for retesting or reevaluation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, and and also then we're also having that sort of long-term conversation, like you said, taking that broader view of why that deficiency might have been there. Is it lack of dietary intake or is it an absorption issue or something mm. like that and sort of digging into that further? Yeah, root cause for sure. Awesome. Is there anything else you wanted to add to the conversation there in terms of like what you see in clinic or what you're finding really helpful with the clients that you're working with? I know on Instagram you had a little bit of a red flag addition about yes. some issues that you've seen um, with the sort of broader conversation. Have we covered most of those? Yeah, I think we have covered most of those. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I guess I was sort of uh, having a bit of rant about the <laughs> no, issues Red flag. that um, I see in clinic. And one of the big ones, which we've obviously talked about quite a lot today is just that um, that criteria, which is vague at best, is being met, that Rotterdam criteria. And then that woman is being prescribed metformin and there's really no more conversation had about that. Um, that's a really big issue. And I think what is important to understand is that if nothing else is done, the secondary complications are likely still to develop. Like I just um, gave that example earlier about my client who has been left for eight years just taking metformin and has obviously developed a lot of secondary complications. Mm. Um, I think the other thing uh, is that there's possibly, and I know this is a touchy subject, but possibly unnecessary fertility interventions um, that Mm. you can avoid if you look at addressing this thoroughly and early. Um, And I think other issues around this is, you know, metformin is obviously a medication, does have side effects. Have you actually been correctly prescribed that? Um, Mm. And even if you have been, I think it's really arguable that that is even the right intervention if you're still then ending up with all of these other complications, possibly if if um, those excess carbohydrates are continuing to be um, had day to day. Other issues, I think, is just, I guess, lack of clarity, I think, around mm-hmm. the diagnosis in general is a real issue. Um, and lots of misconceptions like I think another one that Lara Bryden often talks about is that the fact that you can still be lean and have PCOS I think because conventionally uh, the only sort of recognized cause of PCOS is insulin resistance and that is why metformin is prescribed but like we touched on there's actually four different types and um, it is very possible that you are lean you don't have that 
characteristic body shape and type of someone mm. that's insulin resistant. Which and is you can, that HA picture as well yeah, that we were talking about earlier and that misdiagnosis sometimes. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think um, like even I've had clients wanting to seek clarity about their diagnosis for PCOS and had doctors laugh at them because they're not overweight. Um, which I just think is horrific. But anyway, um, and then other things I think in that post that I included were um, that if you have PCOS, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to experience fertility challenges. I think that's a really common one. Um, And I suppose that goes back to what we touched on earlier about thinking that if you have it, it means you have it for life Mm. um, and that there's not really anything you can do about it. And I think hopefully what we've um, covered today is that there is definitely everything you can do about it and you really can put it into remission, which means that you certainly don't need to necessarily experience those fertility challenges. It isn't a given just because you have PCOS. Yeah, for sure. So much clarity required, but I'm sure we've done a very good job of helping, you know, spread that message. And as always, we're going back to these two common concepts that I see about obviously testing instead of guessing, like in the insulin is a big example here. And then looking for the root cause rather than looking for an intervention, whether that's pharmaceutical or um, a supplement form, like let's get really good at identifying why we're having these issues in the first place Mm. and developing a strategy that can, in most cases, allow for remission. That's just so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So where can our listeners find more about you and where can they learn or read your Red Flag Edition? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. Um, They can find me on Instagram. So my handle there is just my name. So Selene Douglas underscore nutrition. And then my website, very simple, selenedouglas.com. Beautiful. All those links will be in the show notes. Thank you so much. I've loved this conversation and I'm sure we'll have you back on the show very soon. Thanks so much for having me, Steph. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.